We're back with another episode of ODRC Voices, and today I'm sitting down with Chuck Bradley, the warden at Pickway Correctional Institution. Chuck, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Grant. So let, let's, before we talk about your time at, um, with DRC, uh, let's go back a little bit for, before that, because I know you have some plenty of interesting stories that you can share with us. Tell us a little bit about what you did before you came to the department. Um, well, I went to college first and, and uh, played football for Defiance, uh, the Yellow Jackets. What'd you play? <laughs> Running back and defensive back. Um, and, and I had a partial scholarship. And after a period of time, I think I came home one summer and realized that I needed to figure out a way to pay for school. So I uh, joined the reserves, Army Reserves at the time. And, 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 and with my parents' blessing, I went to basic training and AIT. And, uh, after that, I came home and Actually, how I started in the department was my mom and dad's next door neighbor. He worked at the house State Performatory. Said, "Hey, they got part-time work out there." He lied to me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to get a summer job, so I filled out an application and uh, I ended up going to work for OSR, and uh, that's how my career really, really started. Uh, so con- con- concurrently, I was also in the military. So. <clears throat> I, I ended up going on a couple different deployments. Most notable was doing Desert Storm, uh, which was early in my corrections career. And I was gone for about almost a year. And actually, my first child was born in. And, uh, so that was a, a, an experience. I came home and started back working on my career with the department. And just had like multiple um, um, promotions after that that kind of happened I think a little bit too soon I mean I was I was a sergeant at, and at, the, at the time the union sergeants wasn't in the union so I was a sergeant at 22 and I think I was a lieutenant at 24 I was a captain at 26 <clears throat> I was a major at 28 no major probably at 29 or 30 I think and and, and it really so it got to the point in my career where I think, uh, from a professional standpoint, I was very astute at my job and the position. I really was dedicated to that. But from a personal standpoint, uh, you know, my maturity level probably wasn't what it should be. Uh, at, at, at a young age, uh, um, even though I was focused on my work, it probably wasn't the most important thing in my life. So it was, it was a challenge. Um, and realizing that, and by that time I had... Uh, did about 10 years in the military and I wasn't going to enlist anymore. I was a non-commissioned officer. So I got out of the military and then two or three years passed and uh, I was a chief of security and, and I thought I knew everything, which I didn't, which was something that really I needed to be humbled. And I realized that I needed to have a more competitive edge professionally, professionally and personally. So I actually volunteered to go back in the military right before 9-11 uh, to be an uh, officer in air defense artillery, um, which meant at 31 or 32 years old, which is a little older to go to Officer Canada School, I uh, went back and dedicated the next year and a half to that, which means I was actually like with toothbrushes, scrubbing floors. Mm-hmm. And, taking orders and really being engaged and, and I had a whole bunch of people to tell me what to do, but it made me realize that one of the most appealing aspects about being a leader is understanding how to take orders. 
And I think I needed that reintegrated into me in my career. Uh, so from there, uh, I really had the opportunity to excel uh, in my military career. And uh, I was commissioned as an air defense artillery officer. I had some great experiences uh, with that. I've been, I was in El Paso for a while, Fort Hood, Texas, uh, Washington, D.C. Um, but on my last deployment, I actually, one of the interesting things I think I have, I, I was able to do is um, when I was a task force leader for uh, a specific team in Washington, D.C., and I got selected for it, and I thought it was great. But I was in charge of like uh, 12, 12 guys, and they had all different types of uh, uh, skills. But when my primary guy, I got attached with the Secret Service. So one of my primary jobs was to be able to, uh, on notice, I get a call from the Secret Service, and um, I was deployed uh, at the time it was President Bush. Uh, I was deployed to provide ground-based air defense um, for Crawford and some other areas um, in conjunction with Secret Service, uh, Texas State Highway Patrol, um, the Air Force out of Austin, Texas. Uh, who was part of our rapid response, and then we had a cap overhead with with, with uh, Secret Service folks that also had helicopters. Very interesting. I had a great time. How long did you do that? A year and a half. Uh, so I had the opportunity to to go on these missions, and and uh, but it took a lot away from my my home and my life and my family, and 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 those are the things I think you know Grant at where I'm at now that that, that probably. Uh, bothers me the most because, you know, throughout my career, I spent a lot of time, energy, effort about work. Uh, but something I try to teach my staff all the time is about balance. And I spent a lot of time thinking about my career, trying to be, figure out the best I can be for my family. But at the same time, I wasn't giving enough to my family at all. And that suffered and tremendously. And, you know, these are the type of, even now, I try to make up for those things and it's hard. You know, so you know, I got new folks that come here. I just talked to to a couple new corrections staff today, and one of the things I like to focus on the most is, hey, take care of your family first. You know, your job is real close behind, uh, but you do have to have a delicate balance between both uh, to really uh, be happy in doing what you're doing and to take care of those folks that's close to you. Because if you don't, uh, those things will suffer, and, and and eventually your work will also suffer if you ain't taking care of your family. So you know, it's it's good to be able to explain that to folks that start working for our department that's that's new in our department and, and to give them that type of advice. Mm -hmm. and, and I try to live by that every day now, but it, it was a challenge. Uh, but throughout my career, I've had excellent opportunities to be involved and engage with uh, a lot of interesting folks in our department that gave me opportunities to. Uh, put me in the position I'm in now that I'm grateful for. Well, let's talk a little bit about that opportunity you had with the Secret Service and, and working there, uh, providing that support. Tell us a little bit about what that job entailed. Um, well, it, it was classified. You know, we always started off like this, classified, unclassified. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's talk about unclassified stuff. Unclassified, and I talked about uh, providing ground-based air defense. Uh, at at the at the time, uh, I had a certain skill set with, with we have uh, signal radars, and signal radars are pretty good. And they have a 
they have a long range as far as picking up air traffic signals. Uh, and, and they have an ability in, 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 in the military. We have WADS, which is Western Air Defense, and we have uh, <clears throat> NEES, which is Northeastern Air Defense. And what that is, that's actually for every use. So every, every plane that we have, uh, commercial, military, no matter what, that goes over the continental United States, we're tracking uh, from all over. And, and we're tracking speed, uh, the number of folks, how high it is, where they're going, and that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week by, by some great folks in our military. Well, on this particular mission, believe it or not, uh, the president's uh, ranch is in Crawford, Texas, which at the time had a um, gap in signals between Western Air Defense and Northeast Air Defense. So right around Crawford, we had a dead spot. Mm. Uh, and, and, and the inability to control air traffic around his area. So one of, one of the responsibilities I, we had was to set up signal radars to push that signal back out to wads and knees to get a clear air picture. And the second part of that was be able to actively respond uh, to any type of aircraft that uh, posed a threat to that particular space. And it's tertiary. I mean, you know, first we send out jets, depending on the distance, then helicopters, depending on the distance. And then the worst case scenario, which we never had to run into, was actually have to need to uh, utilize force to, uh, um, you know, shoot down an aircraft, ballistic missile, whatever the case is. So the, the, the cool, that was cool. I mean, one of, but but that was routine and it was boring. The stuff that really, you know, that increased your pucker factor is everything you did was recorded. Every person you talked to, uh, I I had a lot of digital equipment that was secret that couldn't be tapped into, and you had to do a lot of monitoring with that stuff. Uh, it was a full board colonel that was. Uh, actually the, my liaison to the president that I, I briefed every day. So we mm -hmm. talked every single day, no matter what. And, 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 it's, and it's weird to, to uh, see how many resources are committed uh, on, on, on any of the presidents of the United States to get them from point A to B mm -hmm. or just to stay stationary. Uh, you would be surprised at how many people are engaged and involved in that process. Um, out on, on this ranch, we, we, we call it the Western White House. And, and this was, so right across the street from this ranch, he also had seven acres where we set up the Western White House. And, 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 and so you have this acres out in the middle of nowhere. And I think the president's uh, nearest neighbor was probably about three and a half miles away. And one time he had a party. And the president had a party? No, his neighbor, neighbor. Okay. and invited the president. And, of course, the president went. <laughs> the logistics, and it was one road, three and a half miles away, uh, just for him to move from his house to that house for three or four hours, we shut down the entire road, which is probably about 10 miles long, mm -hmm. on both sides, and restricted access, you know, including people and a few other folks that lived on that road. And it, it, it was just always amazing, and 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 the courage, uh, and the things like that that people don't really know about is is amazing. I remember one time when uh, 
it made it really put some things in perspective. Uh, was at the president's house at his ranch, and he was waiting to leave Marine One, and he, and, and he was about to fly, um, I think, to Georgia. He was doing the primaries. So even on his ranch, uh, which is restricted, nobody could get on his land, but from the road was about a quarter mile from his ranch to where we have uh, the helicopter's place. And to get him uh, a thousand yards, you had Secret Service vehicle in front, a Secret Service vehicle in the back, and these guys escorted him all the way down. And the part, Grant, that really got my attention was when he actually pulled up and you had a lot of different people that was on his ranch for this week. But the only person in that vehicle was him. And it made me realize how alone that position is. Mm. And even in the vehicle, uh, the protocol was he had to lean over almost in a non-silhouette position. So even with the tinted windows, the armored vehicle, you could only see like the top of his head. And he had to drive everywhere he went, you know, in these type of motorcades is how his body was fixtured. And, and, it, and it was amazing to me. I was like, man, I don't think I can live like that every day. So the sacrifices that our leaders have for our country uh, is something that you know I don't think a lot of people uh, not necessarily understand, but understand the diligence and, and, and the sacrifices they make and, and the selfless service that they commit to the country every day. Um, and, and, and that's, that's, I mean, our job was, you know, one of our mottos was, you know, our job was to, uh, you know, not just in D.C., but also in Crawford, Texas, um, was to give key leadership the freedom of movement. Um, but it's not necessarily the physical freedom of movement. It's the freedom of movement to be able to perform their tasks every single day from a leadership perspective. And so we always want to operate under that concept to have clear skies, um, in, in either in D.C. or in Crawford, and, and, and the unbelievable and, and the attitude to know that those folks feel safe and are able to go do their jobs for our country. So it's interesting. That's fascinating. What would you say that experience, what did you take away from that most? Oh, uh, a couple of different things. Even little things are important. Um, it, it's a, I remember it's a story where uh, I had a couple of mechanics that reported to me and one of the mechanics, um, a piece of equipment was down, and any time we had a situation like that, uh, uh, our logistical support was from Fort Hood, Texas, which was about 35, 45 miles away from Crawford. And our, I, evidently a piece of equipment went down, I think a generator or something, and the mechanic went back to Fort Hood, got a, a piece of equipment to fix it, and he also picked up two um, five-gallon drums of fuel that went with it. Well, what they didn't do is they didn't notify me. I didn't notify the colonel. Colonel found out about it. And instantly, a very simple situation became very, very stressful. And uh, the, the, the true issue was now we have a unknown substance that mm. got in a area that's close to the president that hadn't been checked mm. because it's fuel. He thought it was fuel and it was fuel. But those are the type of things, I mean, the most small, minute detail, everything had to be planned out. 
And it really helped me with my career moving forward was, you know, sometimes, you know, and I tell people this all the time, you, you got to be able to do the simple things well consistently. And if you're able to do the simple things well consistently, when you do have an issue that's a little big or complex, if you're doing those simple things over and over again consistently and you do them well, it helps you when you really have to deal with big things. And that's one big takeaway I got from that. Hmm. Interesting. So when you look at your experience in the military as a whole, and you look at your time with the Department of Corrections now serving as warden, how do you think that that time in the military made you a better leader? Yeah, it's, it's weird because it, 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 it changed over my career. Um, you know, when I was early in my career in the military, I, uh, it actually helped me early in my career. I drew from the military early in my career as a correction officer, sergeant, and lieutenant. So my, my, my leadership abilities, I really drove from the military. Now, when I did the second stint, and, and mind you, I, I already had, I already, by the time I went back in the military, I had almost 15, 16 years in. And I was a chief of security and had a lot more responsibility. Where my military role, I didn't have as many people. And so it was the opposite. My, it was actually my corrections experience helped me mm. with my military career on the second half. Uh, be, be, because in those leadership positions, a lot of folks were new in those positions, but I just been in charge like 300 and something folks so going back in the military the second time as an officer I actually uh, glean a lot from the Department of Corrections on making the right decisions especially about people so so they 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 they, they really helped me out both ways one early in my career it was definitely in the military that that helped me at work but then later in my career is definitely my corrections experience that helped me in the military to make the right decisions um, I, I, one thing I tell people all the time when you start talking about leadership is, you, you know, a lot of times people want to judge leadership and, and judge people in certain positions on how well they do and how well they accomplish a, a particular skill. And, and, and I'm in the position, I've been in the position probably for the last 10 years, you know, folks don't judge me about what type of work I do, they judge me about what type of work my people do. Mm-hmm. And to be able to uh, understand that in a way is how much time and energy and effort you got to go back and invest in your folks because that's how you're going to get graded. You know, a true leader is someone that can motivate and influence somebody to do something that they wouldn't normally do at any other time. You know, uh, and without me, would you do it without me? And that's that's a good sign of a good leader. If you can motivate your folks to do it even when you're not there and you know you've done a great job. And, and, and we need that, you know, not just in this department, but in life. You've got to have those folks there that's going to be able to influence you and motivate you in the right direction all the time. You talk, not just on this podcast, but when you and I talk outside this, you lean a lot on your passion for leadership. Um, when we talk about leadership here in, in society these days, there's different ways I think that folks look at being a leader. Um, you've found a lot of success recently in your job. How... How has your approach to leadership changed the culture of the institution you work at? Oh, that's that's a good question. I, I you know, uh, you know, I come to work every day, and I realize, and, and one of one of the first things I tell people when they come here, and we talk about a lot about uh, the mission. We talk a lot about goals and and responsibilities, and you know, I get questions all the time. Okay, how is it? What 
what is your job? What what do you do, Warden? And the the part that I think kind of people don't get initially is, you know, you don't work for me. I work for you. You know, and, and the role as a, a leader, you have to be there to be able to su support and supplement your staff. Uh, every day they're going to have a lot of challenges and obstacles, and my primary job is to mitigate those as much as possible. Uh, you know, and so we want to put these folks in a position where they can exceed expectations. And the only way people can exceed expectations is giving them that environment where they're going to produce the most. And that means you got to go back out there and be invested in what they're uh, challenges are and understand what they are and be able to engage every individual as much as possible. Um, you know, the, corrections is a people business and if you don't like people you're probably in the wrong business. Uh, so you always have to be able to, and it's a full contact sport and a, a lot of folks want to shy away from being engaged and talking to folks when you're in the wrong business. I want to be out there fully engaged, I don't care what role, what skill you have, but whatever you bring to the table is a part of the mission. I have to understand what your needs are, and you also have to understand what the expectations are. And that give and take should happen every day, no matter who you come across in your department. It should be no one out of reach for me that I'm not able to influence every single day. And one other thing that I like to utilize, or now I talk about a lot with my staff is, and future leaders, you have to be prepared to at least you know, you gotta you gotta lead at least two levels down, but you gotta be able to manage at least one level up. And people say, Well, what does that mean? Lead two levels down and manage one level up. So, well, at your point of influence, you should be able to be actively engaged, not just in, in talking, but in productivity with with that level that is all the way down to at least two levels. You know, so you know, I should be able if, if my direct report and the people that report directly to them. From that leadership perspective, I got to be able to lead all the time. I can't. You got to be engaged just as much, almost as much as that direct support person is. And everyday contact, so they can understand the mission. They understand what your job is. They should know everything I know, at least two levels down. Now, the cool part is the part I think where we get more bang for our buck is to be able to manage one level up. And what I mean by that is a lot of times you got folks, especially you got your boss, that you got to be able to manage in a way to get work done. And what I mean by that, put them in an excellent position to exceed expectations. So when you manage one level up, just because they're your boss will mean they know everything about everything in your particular area. Your job is to make sure they know and give them every opportunity to make the right decision based on the information that we give them. And, and so from a leadership perspective, you've got to be able to paint a clear picture for your direct report and manage them in a way where they have clear and concise information to make the right decision. And if they choose not to, you've done your job. And so I, I really like to encourage folks to be able to, even with me, I, I don't, I can't see everything and I tell my folks all the time, manage me, mm -hmm. you know, tell me something that I don't know so I can make the right decision. And we need that push, uh, not just from your boss, but you also need that from your subordinates to be able to be able to push you like that and hold you accountable for what you say and what you do. We've talked about your leadership and your approach with the staff that you have here at Pickway. What is your approach in terms of leadership with the offenders that are at your institution? It, it's, it's, it almost mirrors. It almost mirrors. Uh, and it's something else we talked I just talked about it this morning is, you know, I have these long conversations with our staff and I articulate what my goals and expectations are. I articulate how I work for them and, and I try to do it in a, in a very professional way. 
And at the end of that conversation, I always say a couple different things. One, I just spent that last half hour articulating my expectations and how I feel about you coming and joining our family. Uh, not once was I disrespectful. Not once was I mean. Not once did I yell. That will never happen. The expectation is those folks that you be reporting directly to have that same expectation. If, if you work under this environment, none of, nobody that reports directly to me will ever talk to you in that way. They will only talk to you the way I talk to you. And then I end that with, in the same way I talk to them, in the same way I talk to you, it's the same way you need to talk to those offenders. You know, people need to understand and know and understand what right looks like. And, you know, it's all this adages. And we, we have, a, you know, I look at my officer's patches all the time, the Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. And that rehabilitative piece is such a fundamental word that we use all the time. But the folks that, that, that's incarcerated, the majority of them, sometimes we got to realize this. Rehabilitation means that at one point in my life I was living the right way. And now I come to prison and i got to figure out how to readjust so I can go back doing the right things. The majority of our people never lived the right way. And so they don't understand or know what right looks like. So I think one of our biggest goals in our department is is to, our staff need to understand that they're the ambassadors for professionalism. They're the ambassadors to show people how they should live every single day. So regardless of what they had before they came to prison, when they get here, they should see role models or examples of how this is how I'm supposed to talk. This is how I should act. This is how I should articulate my feelings. This, this is how I should uh, air my grievances in a way that's professional and courteous that mirrors what our expectation is for people in the community. So I push that on my staff and I also really expect that out of the offenders that we deal with every single day. So, you know, when you start talking about reintegration, you should be looking at these examples that should be consistent throughout the organization on what that looks like. You know, and sometimes it works and you know, like anything, sometimes, you know, you get a few folks that just don't get that message. When we talk about corrections, and, and you brought up the rehabilitation part and the name of yes. the ODRC name, for many years, corrections was just that, corrections. Yes. Um, as Director Moore talks about a lot, it was, it was keeping the, uh, a lid on things. And really, the approach of this department for quite a few years now, under, especially under Director Moore's leadership, has been focusing on rehabilitation. And sometimes, we might think that you have prison and then you have reentry work. Yes. But so much of it goes hand in hand. Right. What, for those who maybe don't get to see behind the scenes of a prison and, and understand how that works, can you give a little bit of insight as to the reentry work that you all do in prison? Yes, um, and, and all, almost all of our prisons have a reintegration unit. And one of our primary focuses is, 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 is paying close attention to those folks, uh, not only when they first come in and they become incarcerated and we go through this orientation process, but on the back end, getting those folks prepared for release. And in and, and, and all of our prison communities, we, we focus on the education and programming. Um, you know, studies show us every single day, if you, and, and, and something that we're really trying to work on here is we have to set the plate for our offenders when they come in, get them education, and get them behavioral, cognitive behavioral type programming not only does that help them when they get released, but it also helps us manage those offenders while they're incarcerated. So it's a win-win. So if we can if we can get 
programming on the front end, reentry on the front end, education on the front end, and, 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 and it opens up so many more avenues while that offender is incarcerated, and, 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 and it gets us to the point where now when it's time for them to be released, they're more receptive, and there's a lot of things that we can do. So, so we, 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 and, and we're trying hard here at PCI. We set up multiple programs. Not only we are trying to do what we do internal, but ex with our external partners, uh, we're, we're finding jobs for offenders. Um, we have JBM who's here now, and we're doing great things with JBM. They they have interviews at least once a month for offenders that's incarcerated but are about to be released. And those, based on those interviews, we've I have a big piece of machinery down there from a printing company right now where our offenders are getting trained on that equipment getting graded on that equipment, getting interviewed, and when they get when they go out of the door on Friday, it's a good chance on Monday and Tuesday they're gonna be working. And that's and that's the I mean that's the end state. Uh, you know, you wanna see recidivism you wanna see folks stop coming to prison, one of the biggest ways to do that, get them gainfully employed and give them those opportunities to succeed. And uh, and I think our chances are a lot greater if we do that. One last question before I let you go, Chuck. And it, and it might sound like a simple one, but I know it. There, it's uh, a bigger, a bigger complexity to it than it mm -hmm. sounds. What does, for you specifically, what does success look like? And, and uh, every time I hear that word, it's always for me from an organizational standpoint. And, and and success from an organizational standpoint means a lot of things. Um, one of the true measures, is, you know, is dealing with our population, our offender population. And when you start seeing, don't get me wrong, it, it, it's some people that probably need to be in prison. And we got a lot of violent offenders out there and they need to be incarcerated uh, for a period of time or for a longer period of time. Uh, but we have a lot of folks that shouldn't be in prison. Um, and, and, and we should be doing a better job, not just out in the community, but internally to decrease those amount of folks um, and quit wasting a lot of good resources on those folks that could be used out in the community. So success to me, you know, you know I mean, of course, the ultimate success is, you know, we have four prisons in the state of Ohio. That's that's success, you know, and dealing with those 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 people that cannot function out in society only, and 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 also with success is looking out in our communities and seeing what type of support or in our local communities and what we're doing in our communities to better those communities. Uh, I, you know, people use the word synergy, but it's important to me and it's for, important for people to understand from a synergetic approach, if you have communities that's actively engaged and, and building upon themselves and helping those folks that need second chances, and then those folks that need second chances giving back to the community, it's amazing what type of um, force multiplier that becomes. So to me, that's success, I guess. That's the, the sum it all up. You know, give me four prisons and strong communities throughout the state of Ohio, and, uh, and, and everything changes. Our, 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 our poverty levels uh, get better. Our communities are safer. Just a lot of different things, I, I think, just changes the complexion of our communities. Awesome. Well, Chuck, I, I thank you for sitting down with us today and, and sharing some of your story and, and some fascinating um, insight into, <laughs> into your life. So uh, thanks again, Chuck. Hey, thank you, Grant.